When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring the former Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg. Uh, from the moment I booked Nick, I was very excited about talking to him and I'd interviewed him the night before uh, on my TV show, Unspun. Uh, this interview, of course, is more in-depth and I don't want to ruin anything, but it, it really was um, one of the most special nights we've had down there at the St James's Theatre. Uh, he was funny, thoughtful, uh, it was a, a wide-ranging interview in many ways, including um, what his vices are and some of the things he likes to eat, and also great insight into what it was like to be Nick Clegg, in effect, through some of those incredible, intense political moments. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Welcome. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Well, welcome to the, the first political party for about three months. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yay! Fantastic. Welcome back. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yay! Oh, lovely, lovely. New people as well. So, uh, we're not a cult. Um, <laughs> that made it sound like there was going to be some sort of ritual. Uh, but welcome to the show. Uh, a lot has changed uh, since we last... since we last met, of course. Uh, interesting times. Labour had their conference this week. Did anyone go? <laughs> Must be a highly politicised audience. Uh, Ten thousand people uh, went to the main event. Five hundred went to the weigh-in, and uh, <laughs> it was fantastic. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, winning the Labour leadership again with an increased mandate. I haven't got a full Corbyn impression yet, uh, but have you noticed that thing he does where he only speaks out of one eye that thing. <laughs> and sniffs a lot? Have you noticed how often he sniffs? He sniffs and lists things when he's nervous. It's like every time he's speaking, someone's cooking in the next room. We've got 400,000 new members. We've got 200,000 new affiliates. Is someone cooking shepherd's pie? <laughs> got a lovely manner about him. Of course, he'd be Owen Smith. Uh, Owen Smith was defeated. Was anyone here rooting for Owen? A few people who are managing to keep their peckers up. Well done. Uh, Owen, to be fair to him, never really came across as that statesman-like, did he? I think the fact that he was quite short didn't help. Uh, he had sort of personality of a Cub Scout, didn't he, Owen Smith? Eh? Oh, I'd love to be Labour leader. I could do it in my barber job week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's the only political... Uh, he's the only person to run for a leadership contest. I imagine he still calls for his mates. Oh, hello, Mrs. Aggett. It's raining. Do you mean some older boys? I found a frog by the railway line. We're going to cook it. Uh, suddenly he won't. I, I would have loved to have seen him become Labour leader and then Prime Minister. I think he would have brought an energy to the role we haven't had before. Oh, I can't wait for my first G8. Do you reckon we get a buffet? <laughs> oh, I may bring my own cola cubes if it's a sleepover. <laughs> uh, but sadly, he uh, has said that he's going to quit frontline politics uh, for good. Uh, he's, uh, he's defecting to the Lib Dems. So he's. Uh, <laughs> not tonight, mate, not tonight, mate, not tonight. <laughs> Um, suddenly, of course, uh, the Labour Party is going through a period at the moment where there's a lot of abuse knocking about, and both sides uh, are claiming that both sides are as bad as each other. Uh, a lot of people were expelled from the party and weren't eligible to, to vote in the leadership. Like, was anyone here purged? I suppose you don't want to speak up again in case it happens twice, do you? But you don't get thrown out of this gig. But uh, I thought I would look in, I would do my own research into some of the abuse. 
And some of it is incredible. This is one of the things that someone was expelled for. This was a tweet. I would cut Tony Blair's eyes out and set him on fire, the murdering cunt. <laughs> That's from a G. Brown of Scotland. <laughs> it was an incredible... Um, yeah, they've had a fair bit of shit. Um, they set up a memento... Do we have any Momentum members in? Right, well, I, you can sort of guess by the fact that no one's been chucked yet that we don't have any Momentum members in, but uh, they've set up... They're trying to politicise young people now. And at the Labour Party conference, they had a thing called Momentum Kids. And we can take your children along, and it's not just childcare that they provide, but political education for preschool children. It's like, what sort of indoctrination is going to go on in that place? Right, first let's do a bit of reading. Who wants to read Pepper Capitalist Pig? <laughs> yeah. Top of maths now. What do you get if you add 150,000 to 250,000? That's right, Timmy. Total control of party machinery. Very <laughs> <laughs> nice. One clap there. <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, uh, the Tories are gathering now for their uh, conference. They start their conference in Birmingham at the weekend. And of course, they're going to welcome and, and celebrate the leader that's given them unity and success, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> we'll be paying tribute to him at the weekend and of course really since we last since we last met we've got a new Prime Minister in Theresa May I thought it was really interesting the difference between the two leadership contests Labour's and the Tories because the, the Tories have an instinctive understanding of power and they knew that the country was yearning for some sort of leadership and they cut their contest short to instill uh, to install uh, Theresa May um, I mean, there was that and the fact that Andrea Ledson went mad. Uh, that awful interview she gave in the Times where she said, I would be a better Prime Minister than Theresa May because I've got kids and Theresa May hasn't. Now, in what scenario does being a parent make you a better Prime Minister? Prime Minister, please, we need the access codes. ISIS are about to detonate a dirty bomb on the streets of London. Five million lives are at risk. Prime Minister, the access codes, please. You remind me of my eldest. <laughs> Prime Minister, this is serious. We need to find the terracel. If I come up those stairs and find that terracel myself, they'll be fucking murdered. <laughs> so we have, uh, we, have, we, have, uh, we have Theresa May now as Prime Minister. And she reached out, didn't she, May? I thought this was really interesting. Reached out using centre-left language in her first day on the job and talked about inequality and all the rest of it. She also reached out to a big constituency of people, Leave voters, who might not trust her as a Remain campaigner to deliver our exit from the EU. And she looked straight down the barrel of the camera and she used that phrase. She said, and I say this today, Brexit means Brexit. Now, Brexit means Brexit means fuck all, because Brexit is a made-up word. <laughs> Absolute gibberish. Brexit means Brexit. Spoogle means Spoogle as well, mate. That's a promise I will keep. Absolute gibberish. Brexit means Brexit. X means X doesn't mean anything. Melons means melons. Toenails means toenails. Bannisters means bannisters. It's gibberish. Because some people say, oh, well, we are where we are. I know where we are. <laughs> We're in the shit, that's why we're having a crisis today. <laughs> Brexit means Brexit, we'll just pass into business parlance in the next... There'll be people signing off meetings in 30 years without even know what it means. Well, gentlemen, that's any other business. Same time next week, Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> Unadulterated waffle. Uh, and we all understood it, so what does that say about us? Uh, the Greens, of course, the Greens have got two leaders now. Uh, Caroline Lucas and Jonathan Bartley. They run on a joint ticket... They're joint leaders of the Green Party and are now jointly in control of no councils. <laughs> so good luck to the pair of them. Uh, I think as well, as well as all the sort of recent stuff, the whole summer has been dominated in our lives, really, political lives, still dominated by the fallout from the referendum. I think a lot of us still struggling to deal with what it means because the government can't define it yet. And I think 
A lot of people who voted Remain are effectively going through the five stages of grief. Denial. We're not going to leave the EU. Anger. You fucking racist. Bargaining. Maybe we can stay in the single market. Depression. We can't stay in the single market. Acceptance. Fucking right. Send them back. Now, don't applaud that one too much. Turn it into a rally. Uh, <laughs> a mate of mine, section of the week, still like, comes to terms with it, said he can't get on a bus now without viewing people as potential suspects. <laughs> but you need to, and I'm not sure what arbitrary basis he's doing this. Oh, tattoo. Probably voted leave. <laughs> oh, baguette. Probably voted remain. <laughs> Hang on. Tattoo and a baguette. Pervert. <laughs> I think it's helpful. Uh, and I think the, the, the referendum has caused a number of things, including rapidly changing attitudes towards our nation's elderly. Now, a good fortnight before the referendum, we were a country that prided ourselves on looking after the people that built this nation. Once the polling came out that most people over 65 have voted leave, things have taken a bit of a turn for the worse. I honestly think there'll be old people in this country who go to nursing homes a good 10 years too early as a result of that referendum. Hello, Shipman's Homes. Yeah, I've got another one for you, mate. <laughs> Well, 49, but she looks bad on it. <laughs> wheel her off. <laughs> I think one of the, in retrospect now, one of the reasons why the referendum was lost um, was because uh, Remain not only failed to overcome the weaknesses in their own argument, but they failed to sell their big argument best. And the big argument was the economy. And, and they really struggled to get the vehicle right for that. And they tried to scare us. They tried to use uh, the President of the United States to patronise us. And all that didn't work. And then this was epitomised when Cameron and Osborne tried to relaunch their economic message at B&Q. <laughs> and it was, the only reason they went there was because Cameron had a corny line. It was this. If we vote to leave, it will create the first ever DIY recession in British history. <laughs> yeah. It got a better reaction there than it did here, right? And, <laughs> and rightly so, because, frankly, that message was too big to be thrown away on shitty little gags. It should have gone the whole hog. That's why we're here at Wembley, to say it would be a massive own goal if he voted to leave. No, that's why we're here at Ann Summers, to say it is an end to backdoor immigration. But <laughs> 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 well, there was a lack of heart as well, wasn't there? There was a lack of passion, I thought. You know, the, the, the leavers felt like they had all the passion and they owned the flag and they owned all the emotional arguments. To be fair, there was only one person on the Remain side that owned the heart. And to be fair, that was Gordon Brown uh, in his annual referendum address to the nation. <laughs> was prized out of his casket and uh, was, a, was a clap of lightning and an eagle flicked the switch and out he uh, lumbered into the cold night in search of a conference centre to terrorise. <laughs> I'm really late to the party on this, but it was only watching Gordon give his big referendum speeches this year. I noticed two things about the way he speaks. One, when he speaks, is he paces the stage incessantly in a way that suggests he might have been raised in captivity. <laughs> struggle to deal with life on the open plains. Uh, and secondly, none of his sentences ever end. They just juggernaut, one into the other, into the other, into the other, into the other. 
I mean, I haven't seen him since the referendum. He might still be out there fighting it now. <laughs> if you watch him, it's incredible. The mix of seeing not only as citizens of the UK, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland joined in a bond, not just a bond of constitution, but a bond of values. Values of community, values of friendship as well, that allow us to see that no child should be left behind as part of a new Labour government, not only at UK level, but at a European level as well. They're living not only on working hours, but on sure start, not only a minimum wage, but also leading a global debate, not just through Europe, but through our global partners, reaching out to America to lead a global debate, not only in terms of cancelling climate change, but pollution and third world debt as well, that allowed us to see that no child should be left behind. These are the values. I could carry on for another half hour. It's, uh, it's quite exhausting. Um, it's actually helped me lose weight. Uh, it's so exhausting doing it but I can't tell people that's how I'm doing it because they look at you gone out I've had to pretend that I've started running again because say oh I just have a shake for breakfast and do a Gordon Brown impression once a day sort of begs the question why it hasn't worked for him but there we are Uh, ladies and gentlemen you are already uh, a phenomenal crowd and thank you for coming down it's a pleasure to see you all again we have a spectacular guest in the second half uh, and I can't wait to interview him Uh, as always at the end of the second half uh, I will take questions from the audience, so maybe have a think in, a break, uh, in the break about questions you would like to ask. For now, uh, charge your glasses. I'll be back in a few minutes. I'll be Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. I hope you had a nice uh, break. Um, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had some... I think every guest we've had here has been uh, fantastic. And it's always interesting to talk to people at different points in their career. There are certain people... Uh, that wasn't a joke. LAUGHTER there are certain politicians, though, uh, that are at the start of their career, that are a bit cagey, some of the ones that have been through it and uh, very candid about their past performances. There are certain politicians that I genuinely think are part of the sort of political psychology of the nation, people that you sort of follow vicariously on their journey, uh, people that are intensely popular, that we have an emotional relationship with, and then when things falter, the relationship feels more compromised. And I think tonight's guest is certainly one of those people, someone who the country felt deep amounts of affection for, went on a journey with, and I think now actually feels affection for them again uh, and, and a deep respect for, for what they've been through. He's had a phenomenal career. He's a gentleman and a very funny man. Please give a huge reception to Nick Clegg. That was a heck of a reception. Yeah, I'm going to go now. <laughs> Can't get any better than that. Almost as... Yeah, it was like Clegg Mania all over again. Um, <laughs> and as <I> short. <laughs> oh, there are so many, so many things we need to talk about. But as we've mentioned Clegg Mania, one thing I always wanted to ask you is, the first time you heard... I think it was Gordon Brown said it rather than David Cameron. I can't remember which one. The first time you heard, I agree with Nick... What was your immediate reaction? Did you think it was a, a ploy? Uh, I don't think I really noticed it fully. I mean, the, the weird thing about those uh, leaders' debates uh, are that if you are sort of participating in them, um, what happens to the participant, or at least what happened to me was, I remember this was, it was in Manchester, or was it I can't remember, Manchester maybe, that, that first debate. You get let off, I get straight into a car, and I was in a hotel about 45 minutes away somewhere, and I sort of drove off in the car, didn't turn the radio on or anything. I remember, I, I rang my mum. She went, yeah, yeah you did all right. <laughs> I went, oh, that's nice, that's nice. That's... And uh, then I got to the hotel, and I got to the hotel much before the rest of my team, who obviously stayed there spinning sort of furiously. 
And it's only when they came about two hours later that they sort of said it, it, it had sort of got a very, a kind of very positive reception. So it's, it's kind of odd. It's, um, you don't really, of course, you don't know how it's going to be refracted or responded to at all. And I didn't at all that evening. And, and the decision to, to look down the barrel of the camera, was that something you'd rehearsed in well, advance? I'll tell you, this, I'll tell you this, is, this is absolutely true. I, so the other parties, I think, had sort of squillionaire-paid American consultants flown over. Mm. I was given a laptop with a little ear thing uh, yeah. to... to headphone. To, yeah, headphone. <laughs> <laughs> Did you call it headphone? Yeah. Earphone, actually. Earphone, um, yeah. uh, To watch... Uh, and, and, and someone had uh, assembled a, uh, a disc of... Uh, clips from the American debates. Okay. And I used to listen to that as I sort of was going up and down the train uh, to, to Sheffield. And I remember seeing... Now, who was it? It was one of the American... Was it Clinton? Clinton. And uh, Clinton Clinton this, Bush, this, this, this headphone or earphone <laughs> didn't work very well. And I couldn't really hear very much. And it was quite a noisy train and the rest of it. And I remember being sort of quite sort of struck by the fact that... Because I could hardly hear what was going on in these, these debates. Um, the fact that he looked at me on the, in this little laptop <laughs> yeah. made me think, oh, right, I want to hear what he has to say. And that was, that was honestly the origins of... It was, it, was no more, it was no more elaborate or scientific than that. It was just the experience of watching the American debates on a laptop made me realise that someone looking at... I mean, it's hardly rocket science if you think about it. But. No, but it, but it felt like it at the time. <laughs> yes. you know, it, was, it certainly was different because politicians didn't behave like that and it felt like you sort of invented that style of looking straight down the camera and it had a genuine effect. So the following day, so you, you've had the period where you've spoken to your mum yes. and then it, you, you sort of feel like you've done well and your team are telling you you've done well. You're waking up in the morning, the following morning, did you feel like, oh, I'm a bit more popular today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a little... I'll tell you what I did. I mean, I have to admit, I did feel a bit sort of... That showed them. No, because, <laughs> no, you know, because I was like, you know, any other Lib Dem, no one had any idea who I was. It was just all the only... If, if, if anyone said anything about the Lib Dems in the earliest part of that general election, it was just derision, yeah. mockery. We're back to that now, aren't we? <laughs> um, uh, and so there was, there was a sort of feeling of kind of, you know, sort of punching above our weight, uh, which, yeah. was, uh, which was great. Uh, and, then, and then, well, then, of course, very quickly, the dilemma became... Once you, I mean, it's like sort of taking a little, you know, it's like a sort of boat out to a, a little sort of sailing dinghy and then there's no wind and then suddenly it's great gust of wind push, pushes you forward and then trying to work out what to do with that was, yeah. quite, was quite difficult actually because it then developed a kind of momentum of its own. And then I, I do remember thinking and saying to people at the time that people were kind of reading into the Lib Dems and into me all sorts of hope. I mean, <laughs> talk about, uh, you know, a sort of prescient thing to sort of feel. People were sort of, reading into us sort of all sorts of hopes that couldn't possibly yeah. be, uh, be, be met. So I doubled up on that particular, <laughs> that particular prediction later. But, uh, but did, you, did you... So that, that, that's a very sort of political assessment of it. But yeah. as a person as well, you must have thought, it actually feels quite nice. Some people are being nice to me in the street. Yeah, no, of course, of course, of course it's nice when people are nice to you and want, I, I, want, I want to hear you speak and so on. Um, but it was, it was also... It was, there's, there's some sort of interesting sort of bits thinking back on it I, I, it was the first time oddly enough that I could that I've ever experienced how a crowd how the mood of a crowd can change in an instant and it wasn't it wasn't at the sort of height of <clears throat> tuition fees yeah. or the kind of vilification it was the height of Clegg mania I remember the uh, we went to a we went those to heady a, days those heady days <laughs> <laughs> those very <Rather laughs> airports <laughs> those very very brief well since you asked me about them I'll, <laughs> I'll dwell on it for an hour if you like uh, um, but uh, I remember the, the uh, we went to visit a pub in 
I think it was Shropshire or something, and it was quite a hot afternoon, and it was quite clear when our kind of banana-coloured uh, Lib Dem <laughs> yeah. bus came into this kind of paddock that there were lots of people there had been drinking and drinking and drinking, and they were, like, surging forward, and it, and it got quite sort of uncontrolled. And then suddenly it turned quite ugly. I mean, it, just, like, in an instant, something which was supposed to be, uh, you know, all about kind of positive uh, sort of support. And so the, the, the police protection people bundled me back into the banana-coloured bus, and we... <laughs> buggered off again. <laughs> and what was it that turned the crowd? I don't know, I don't know. I, I think, I, I don't know, maybe there's some people, some, some scuffles as people trying to get from one place to another. But, there was nothing uh, to do with anything you'd said? Not, no, I hadn't spoken yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but again, boy, is that a contrast with uh, subsequent elections I've been in, which were all, you know, I mean, so elections these days, at least amongst the sort of big parties, I guess, are all the events are so carefully scripted mm. and planned and orchestrated and all the rest of it. And um, in that immediate period after that first leaders' debates, you know, the Lib Dems, we didn't know how to cope with this. And then suddenly thousands of people would come to events which had been organised for 25 <laughs> local activists. <laughs> you know, it's swamped by all these people. So it was a very uncontrolled thing, which was very exciting. So the leaders' debates, in terms of the politics then of arriving at them and then being backstage, were you, Cameron and Brown, kept apart? Or then you sort of stood by the stage together and there was a bit of small talk? So we were kept, you, kept, you, get, you get given your own kind of room to kind of prepare in and, and they give you makeup and put the mics on and all, that, all the rest of it. But then, uh, yeah, you know, it's like a sort of, you know, stuck by a boxing ring. You're, yeah. you're brought out to, to, I mean, you might as well go <laughs> like that and have a sort of towel around your shoulders. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly the same atmosphere. And uh, I remember uh, after the first leaders' debates, the, of course, all the right-wing press, they went, oh, Shit, <laughs> these Lib Dems, who are, these pesky Lib Dems we've ignored or, or mocked for years. They might, actually, they might actually steal some Tory votes. So they, they absolutely went for me. And there was, you know, banner headline stuff and the Daily Telegraph sort of alleging corruption and the, the Daily Mail saying that I... That's right, the Daily Mail said, Clegg's Nazi slur on Britain. I mean, all this bonkers stuff. Um, and, of course, that consumed a lot of the time of my team sort of trying mm. to answer to all this. Absolutely sort of incoming flack. And I remember in the second leaders' debates, when we, were, when we were just waiting by the door before going onto the stage, so David Cameron turned to me and said, you've had quite a day of it, haven't you? <laughs> Sly little... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but did... Was, was there... Do you think he tried to sort of cultivate a friendship between you two to sort of leave out Brown on, in those debates? Was there a sense that he sort of cosied up and said, he's, he's different, we're similar? Oh, no, no. I think, I think Cameron was absolutely convinced he was going to walk it and really? win, win the election sort of, you know, outright himself. So I don't, I don't think there was any... I don't think there was any ulterior. Okay. But, I mean, he, he was certainly better at the chit-chat than Gordon was. <laughs> so what was Gordon, <laughs> what was Gordon like? Well, he's, he's like a great sort of bear of a figure, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and he shits in the woods? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but was, it, was there any warmth there? He not make, particularly. You know, well done, yeah. not, no, no, but it wasn't like that, to be, to be fair. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like that. I'll tell you the weirder occasion was in the... Uh, sort of multiple leaders debate in this last one, last year. Yes. You know, the one with oh, seven or eight of us suddenly. Yeah. And there was a break. And then we suddenly ended up all of the urinals together. So it's like... Nicola Sturgeon and Natalie Bennett. No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bloody hell. Yes. I know, extraordinary, wasn't it? <laughs> I said the wrong loo! <laughs> So, um, so you, Cameron Miliband, yeah, Farage. No, he wasn't there, was he? No, he wasn't there. Was he there? 
He wasn't at the Urinals. At all. <laughs> yeah. I would remember that. And was there any was there, was there any chat at the Urinal? It was a bit, but I mean, I, <laughs> but I mean, but it's so sort of British. So you're on the stage yeah. in front of the whole nation, tearing strips off each other, and then you're sort of in the Urinals being <laughs> cold out. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so your excuse. We sort of make them. I should rephrase that <laughs> completely. <laughs> Were you so tempted to peek and just think? No, no. <laughs> so I'd be slightly. Anyway, let's move on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Gordon Cameron was more sort of warm, and then there was that incredible period where, before the negotiations started, the ball was in the Tories' court. And I remember watching it on TV with that that beautiful backdrop Cameron used to use somewhere not far from here. Oh, actually, the window, the yeah. window with the garden yeah, yeah. behind. I want to make a big and genuine foot <laughs> of the Liberal Democrats. You must have been watching that live on TV. At that point, did you think that's someone we can do business with? Was it immediately obvious that that was going to happen, or was there still was there still a way to go at that um, point? So, uh, I took we all in sort of the Lib Dem camp. We took very seriously this idea that um, that, the, that, that the and it wasn't just a sort of soundbite. It was a kind of and I think it was I actually think it proved its worth over time that if you were going to create a coalition and if the Lib Dems were going to be in it. It had to be. It had to be on the strongest possible kind of uh, basis of legitimacy, mm. and and so that you know for us. And I kept saying this. I was saying this for months in the run up to the election. Kept saying over and over again, the party with the most votes and the most seats clearly has, even if they haven't got a majority, have got the right to try and assemble a government. Um, and I remember the first time I said that was I think on the Andrew Marr show about six months or so before the election. I do remember Cameron was waiting in the green room and he was going to go on to the Marr show later. Yeah. And then I remember him popping his head in, and he heard that, and he said, that's the first time you've said that, haven't you? And so they clearly had been thinking... Smart. Yeah, 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 it was quite great. They, they, they had been thinking about, you know, what if we don't, and the rest of it. Uh, and with hindsight now, you know, it's all revealed that... I think it's been revealed since then that the, the Tories had kind of done the numbers and realised it was a bigger mountain to climb, uh, perhaps, than, uh, you know, to get an outright majority of their own. Anyway, so I'd said that over and over and over and over again, and said it in the debates, and said it in every single interview... And so it was very kind of the ball was very firmly in his court to see whether he whether he sort of respond to that, you know, he had the mandate to try. So in an odd kind of way, it wasn't that surprise. I mean, what else was he supposed to do? I mean, what, it wasn't. It didn't come as such a surprise to me because, um, and certainly knowing the Tories as I do now, I mean, <laughs> these people were not going to kind of give up any chance of getting their clammy hands on power. That's what they live for. So. Uh, um, so uh, you know, that was all they could do, in a sense. And you had your negotiating teams, but was there any personal chats away from the teams between you and Cameron and yes. you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there were. So there was. Well, in fact, in fact, it almost explicitly worked like that. So there was the. So the Conservatives had. Who did they have? Uh, Haig. Haig, Letwin, and was it Osborne? Osborne I think? It was Osborne. Yeah. And it was. It was David Laws and Danny and uh, Chris Hune and Andrew yeah. Stunnell, uh, and then the Labour lot had the uh, their, had their group. Nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, none of the leaders were ever in those meetings. And then I would meet with Cameron, and I met with Brown. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yes, it was very surreal. <laughs> so with Cameron, the, what, the initial meeting, did, w- w- was there an instinct on your part, not only because of the democratic mandate that you'd, that you'd suggested, the legitimacy argument, but that also in terms of character, he would be an easier person to form a government with than, than Gordon Brown would? Yeah, I felt that quite quickly. I mean... Um, you know, Cameron's both his strength and his weakness, to be honest, is he, you know, he's a very kind of, he's a wily, quicksilver politician, yeah. which makes, which has made him at least a, a politician who, well, until he 
you know, screwed up on the Europe thing. Uh, <laughs> he was forever getting out of scraps and tight corners. In a way, I, would, I would march into every elephant trap available, and he was always, he was much, he was much more wily than me at avoiding them. Um, but, and you could, felt, you could feel that immediately. That he was, you know, he was, in a sense, I, I, always, I always felt when, you know, when hardline right-wing conservatives would say he's not really a conservative, you know, he's not a proper Thatcherite conservative. Actually, Cameron was a classic conservative. Mm-hmm. Power first, being in charge first. For what reason? For what purpose? Entirely secondary. <laughs> um, and he was like, you know, he's like, he was a slightly patrician, sort of home county, you know, home counties type Tory. Very, very much, you know, perhaps more of the sort of Macmillan ilk, really. Yeah. And you... And, and you sort of felt, you felt there wasn't very much ideological kind of baggage or, you know, sort of oomph there. But there was someone who was very pragmatic and very kind of quick. So you did feel that quite quickly. And, uh, and Gordon, Gordon, I mean, he's in, you know, Gordon Brown, as you, I think, intimated earlier. I mean, he's, he's an unusual character. He's very incredibly impressive. Yeah. He's got massive kind of, he's, he's kind of brain power is formidable but partly because of that he'd sort of talk to you in paragraphs he's sort of <laughs> do you know those people who sort yeah, of yeah. you sort of think, I've got to wait for the paragraph to be completed and the filter before I can say something it was like that he'd sort of give you these granite like paragraphs and um and, it, and it'd be quite difficult to sort and of steer and I did Ed <laughs> at the yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. but uh, but and I remember once when I was sat with uh, Gordon Brown and he got his big felt tip pen out and he kept writing all these numbers on the back of an envelope literally on the back of an envelope saying oh, we could have the applied or we could have the SNP or we could have the you and we've got a rainbow coalition and I, I I was physically had to take his arm and sort of put the pen away and say um, Gordon it just doesn't because there wasn't there wasn't an arithmetical there was no majority no. you know so it's just not going to work did you feel slightly hard done by by Labour people because um, there will always Ooh, be just har- a bit because <laughs> there will always be harsh contentions and there will always be people trying to use party advantage and that's fine but the, the Labour Party did to my mind sort of spread the myth that actually it was equal numbers and the Lib Dems chose yeah. deliberately to go into bed with the Tories rather than form a coalition with Labour because the numbers were fairly similar yeah. on both sides yeah, I mean, and we I knew that not to be the case just flatly not true and, and no no I mean still to this day you know in sort of public meetings people say why did you choose the Conservatives over Labour. But that wasn't the choice. It was either a coalition or another election, basically, and the only coalition that could work. Um, I think the, the Labour Party said that because it was a, an essential ingredient to the sort of, the kind of betrayal narrative, yeah. which is, you know, widely beloved of the <laughs> British left and, and I think of sort of, you know, sort of leftish leftist politics in most places. That's, you know, that sort of power has been cheated somewhere, yeah. somewhere along the line, that they're kind of, rightful sort of justification to do the right thing by the people has been... They've been diddled out of it. Or well, the media. Where it was, it's the media. Well, in, 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 of course, during the years of the coalition, it was me. You know, I was the sort of Judas Iscariot of British politics and I'd kind of given up all my principles for power. And, and that was a necessary thing for, for the Labour Party. And it was very successful to them. And they, and they harvested great Lib Dem votes for it. They got, you know, Polly Toynbee echoed this uh, with knobs on... Ev- Sorry, I'll rephrase that. With that. <laughs> Uh, echoed that uh, sort of thesis, you know, in the Guardian every week, and you know, it was very much a kind of, it was a very powerful emotional narrative, which was, you know, this is a sort of mongrel government, and it's malformed, and this, and the Lib Dems have sort of lost their soul, and if it wasn't like, if it was proper healthy politics, you know, we would be in charge, kind of thing. So I think it was necessary for them to intimate that somehow. We, we did something dastardly around Labour, which, you know, really wasn't the case because there, was no, there was no majority to be had with, uh, with Labour. And, I, and I, my own view is whilst it was politically successful for Labour, it obviously did immense damage to us. And it, and it was, as I say, it was amplified a lot by the, by the sort of 
left-wing press. I, I think the great disservice it did to Labour itself, which I think is now coming home to roost, is it meant that Labour stopped thinking after 2010. Because all they needed to do was just, you know, just work themselves up into a lather of indignation and betrayal. And it, they just stopped thinking about what they would do. What would they do about the deficit? What would they do about... You know, they, it was just constant vilification. And, it, and I think it left them very kind of intellectually... Kind of, the, the, the cupboard was bare by 2015 for them, I think. Uh, it, there's Sorry, also so an much element... more serious than No, that. no, no, it's good. Because I, I think there's also an element, and I said this to me, Perhaps of revenge as well is that many people in the Labour Party were sick of having the moral low ground yeah. and sick of being the yeah. victim of protest votes, and then they want to go. And there was, there was that sort of you know those street wars between Labour and Lib Dem people. Yeah. Fought over years and years and years. And to be they fair, there's nothing more. Now, and, mate, there's, and there's nothing the more sanctimonious than the Lib Dems on the campaign trail. <laughs> in, no, 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 no. We did sanctimony very well. No, no, no. I, I, uh, no, I get that. At least, of course. And that's listen. You, 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 you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And lots of stuff was was quite rightly thrown back in our face. And all of that, I get that. And I think that was right. I think they'd, you know, for so long on everything, like, particularly on Iraq, and then on, and then on touchstone liberal issues like you know, ID cards and you know, 90 days detention without charge and all that kind of stuff, where Labour activists felt incredibly uncomfortable mm. having these sort of pesky, sanctimonious <laughs> local Liberal Democrat you know, candidates reminding them. And then in a sense, what the Liberal Democrats were in the latter years of the, of the Blair yeah. A Blair Brown era. We were like a sort of, we were like a slightly holier than that conscience, if you like, yeah. for the Labour Party. So when that conscience then goes to and, and governs with the, you know, the, 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 the people who you think are truly beastly, then of course, it, look, I, I'm not pretending that I wouldn't do anything else if I was a Labour activist, but it certainly wasn't particularly nice to be subject to. But much more important <laughs> in that, I think it led the Labour Party just, it just meant it lulled themselves just sort of not thinking. Challengingly about what they had to, you know, what kind of policy ideas they had to develop themselves. Uh, obviously, the biggest uh, rod to beat you with was was tuition fees. Just a bit. Um, to pe- apart from it, I was still going to say, do people still ask you about this? And I was just about to ask you about it. But in the street, do people still mention it? Uh, now, yeah. No, oddly enough, not really. I mean, um, too busy working as so I can just pay the fucking <laughs> debt. <off>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, that was a low blow, but... It was good, that was good. Very good, very good, very good. Uh, no, they don't, really. Um, my, my own experience, but I'm sure you'll correct me, but is that the people for whom the kind of sense of betrayal about that was greatest mm. over time wasn't actually the kids who went into the system. Yeah. It was particularly the parents who... Particularly, I found, parents who... Haven't gone to uni- hadn't gone to university themselves, were incredibly proud that their kids were going to university and then were saying, hang on a minute, you know, finally, I'm, you know, my daughter's going to have, I'm going to have the, I'm going to have the photograph of my daughter in the, yeah. with a graduation gown on my mantelpiece. It's the proudest moment for me as an aspirational parent and now you're, you're you know, you, you've, you've broken your word and you've saddled them with the, It's those parents mm. who, who, in my experience, are the most, um, and I can totally understand why, the most un- Unforgiving. So if there are, you know, if it does come up, it's often the parents, uh, particularly, you know, with that kind of, um, with that experience, if I can put it that way. Uh, 
you talk about it in your book, and what I find really interesting in it is that you say effectively that it should never have really been lived in policy in the first place. Was that this no. was something that you were kind of against anyway, but no. you sort of drifted along with it, and then the famous photo that the yeah. NUS had sort of done. So in the, you were fighting elections on slightly reluctant policies. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the, the original sin of many uh, uh, original sins was, I mean, and by the way, and people, f- of course, I totally understand this. History does tend to get slightly reinvented. So everyone now sort of thinks that 2010 was year zero and there was no tuition fees. That's not actually true, of course. Fees had been introduced many years earlier by Labour. And then, given how sanctimonious Labour was about what happened to us, they were increased again despite a manifesto commitment from Labour not to. What our huge mistake, and, it, and you're quite right, it was a mistake that myself and Danny Alexander and Vince Cable and David Laws in particular... But main, mainly Vince Cable. No, 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 but, well, yes, no, 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 uh, uh, no, we all, we all thought that it was just in, a, in, a, in an era of, you know, money was very tight and we'd had this terrible crash in 2008 and the state of the public finances was, and it's a hugely expensive thing to do. And remember also, I mean, there is a sort of slightly more subtle thing about all this, which is that it is a hugely expensive subsidy mm. paid for by lots of people who haven't gone to university to pay lots of people so, good, you know, so, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're having to choose, would you really choose that? Anyway, the huge mistake was that no one in the, that sort of senior group in the Liberal Democrats felt it was a sensible thing to do. But, of course, it's a very popular thing to do, particularly amongst middle-class families and middle-class university-going mm. uh, communities and so on. And, uh, and we tried constantly to try and change it. And there's a, 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 a MP, uh, Stephen Williams, who spent a long time trying to devise different ways of doing it. And then in government, we tried to devise a graduate tax... Which, by the way, Pretty essentially is, is what it is. Yeah. And if it was called a graduate tax, I suspect people would find it more digestible. But anyway, um, so that, yeah, you're right. The original sin was we went into the election with a commitment that no one in the senior team thought was sensible. So much so that I refused as leader to have it on the front page of our manifesto. So it wasn't the front page of the manifesto. Yeah. I barely actually talked about it very much in the election, <laughs> except for, as you say, that famous photo. And for, you know, if, if anyone needs any evidence that it's photos that speak much more powerfully than words, it's, it's, uh, it's what happened to me. So <laughs> beware. <laughs> beware. So when, when that, you had that student protest, because I went down just to watch it out of morbid interest. Did you? Right, OK. Um, oh, I wasn't on it. I'm not, no, I'm not no, that sort of person, but I just thought, I, I want to sort of see this happen. And, and then it ends, it culminates in that guy dropping a fire extinguisher off the top of Millbank Tower and all that, and it, yeah, got, it yeah. went far too far. Did you, were you sort of nervous at that point? Did you think, they might come through the windows or something? Um, no, I didn't. Though I remember, I, of course, there were quite a lot of demonstrations. I can't remember which one it was, but I think it was the first <laughs> big one. I, I, was, I was giving a speech up, uh, at the, up, up at the other end of Whitehall, and I was in the, it was in the, the car being driven by the police, and they said to me, you've got to lie on the back of the seat, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, which is quite a difficult thing for a you know, policeman to say, could you please you just lie uh, on, on the back seat with your red box on top of you so that, um, so that, so that the protesters were milling around in Whitehall. And then they had to get me back from then in Whitehall back into the Cabinet Office. So you and, had and you, I, and I was there? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and what sort of, like, on your back or on your side? I'm going to show you how I lay on <laughs> uh, But was, was there, there must have been a point going through your head where you thought, what the fuck? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? Well, no, 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 but then later, then after I gave the speech, they had to sort of smuggle... There's a, there's a, whole, there's a whole set, I mean, it's quite James Bond-esque, this. I didn't know they existed. There's a set of corridors. Underground. So what are you doing next? 
James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's an idea. <laughs> uh, but there's a whole set of corri- uh, passageways underneath Whitehall, and there was one connecting uh, the Ministry of Defence to the Cabinet Office. I was sort of smuggled through the, like a sort of dirty secret sort of <laughs> back into my office through this underground, underground passageway. So, yeah, no, of course I did realise then it was... Um, it, but, I mean, it, perhaps it shows my immense naivety. Even at that stage... I remember thinking, I've just got to explain it better. Mm. You know, I just have to explain. You don't have to pay it off if you can't, and and you and you'll actually pay out less from your bank every every month than you did under the old system. And and no, it's not a debt because if, if you'll only pay it back when you can afford to, and it'll, you know, you, the people who earn the most. You know, I, I had this incredibly naive, and I remember I went on Jeremy Vine live when there was they were talking to demonstrators, and I started trying to argue with one of the demonstrators <laughs> about the policy, and of course I could have. I could have told them the moon was made of cheese for all they cared. I mean, yeah. they, they just weren't, by that stage, of course, you, you become such a cardboard cutout. I think Douglas Carswell has, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't make the tides. <laughs> no, but th- that's the other thing, which I th- I'm sure other politicians have told you, is either politicians who've been sort of massively lauded or, or massively vilified, it does, it is a bit like an out-of-body experience because you sort mm. of feel this, you feel this caricature being made of you, and then when you see it being sketched out, you think, well, surely people are not going to believe I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm not, and they, oh my God, they, they think I'm like that. Yeah. And then, then you have to make this leap that you then, when you answer questions, you remember you have to answer questions like the caricature of you rather yeah. than who you think you are yourself. It's a very, it's quite a complex thing. And what do you think your caricature was? <laughs> well, I don't think it was a very favourable <laughs> one on that stage. I always felt, I mean, I always feel for politicians because I think the vast majority, regardless of party, come into politics with the right yeah. um, intention. And I think they leave with them as well. And I don't subscribe to the view that all politicians are ruined by it. And they're still human beings, which yeah. is what really strikes me, having worked for them, is the immense physical and emotional <clears throat> toll it takes on them and their families. Yeah. And I just remember that image of you the day after the election, resigning and very tearful. I mean, th- that must have been a, a whirlwind for you to try and control You're yourself. You're picking the nice bits then, aren't you, of my, oh, but we're, we're my political nice, career? Yeah. But it's the emotional yeah. bits, because I, I honestly think that, Of course it's a very emotional thing. And I think that the public are with you on it. I think part of the reason why, and it, 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 similar to Blair in a way, is that when people really invest in a person, not just a politician, the so-called betrayal then is, is so much more oh, right, magnified, yeah. because... People felt about you that you weren't a politician. They didn't right. expect what this, whatever they believed yeah, the betrayal yeah, yeah. to be. And then I just became another politician who didn't. Yeah, yeah, no. But, but then equally, but then there's that period afterwards where people then start to feel fondly about you again, and they go, "Oh, actually, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I like Nick." Yeah. Like, I like but at that point after the election in, in 2015, where you're quite tearful, we would sort of. What's going through your head at that point? Do you think, I can't cry on TV? Of course I'm thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Well, I, I think what do you think? I was going, oh my God. <laughs> because I think... There's a bit of pride left. Well, <laughs> not much. Not much by that stage. No. But I wonder if sometimes, and I think it would be justified, to maybe show a bit of emotion yeah. to let the public know that you're feeling something. <laughs> yeah, but then if you did that... Maybe not to. You know, the Daily Mail would just go to town. Before. I mean, it really is... It's just, you, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Uh, but, but, but what you just said about people changing their... I remember the uh, following day, uh, I was uh, you know, back at home, having been out on the campaign trail for, for quite some time, and, uh, and I, for some reason, got it in my head that my 
security vetted BlackBerry because in government, I don't know whether it's changed now, but the, when I was in government, you, you weren't allowed to have iPhones and That's things because right. they, they could be easily hacked by whoever. So you were given these security vetted Blackberries, which were rubbish. You couldn't take a photograph with them. You can get, you can get on the internet. And, anyway, that, that, and Cameron and I actually texted and e- emailed quite a lot on sort of government business. So it was quite important. But I, I got it in my head <laughs> immediately after the election that someone was going to turn up from the Home Office and say, right, we'll have that back now. Thanks. So I remember saying to my oldest son, go on, let's go and I'm going to go and buy a phone. You want to come? You know, he's a 14 year old. Oh, yeah, we'll go into the phone shop. And I was thinking, oh, God, this is going to be this is in, uh, in Putney in southwest London. And it was a it was a Friday morning then. Yeah. No, actually, it was the Saturday morning. And I was thinking, oh, it, you know, it's going to be really embarrassing. I've just been completely not for six by the British people. And it's just going to be all a bit. Oh. And yet person after person came out to me. Oh, that was so unfair. <laughs> so, and then one lady came out in tears and Mr. Clegg is just so fair so I said to her nice to oh, see the wife again yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right. That's right I said there there Miriam no no, no, no. So I sort of obviously thinking she was a Lib Dem I said well, you know, there there no, thank, you for, thank you so much for supporting the Lib Dem she said no I didn't I voted green <laughs> <laughs> How do you vote for another party and then sort of weep about the fate of another party? Well, because people still care about yeah. people, don't they? There is, there is that, and I hope we retain it. And it feels like we're living in quite febrile times, even, yeah. even more than when you were in government, and that's changed very quickly in the last year, is that this feels like there's a yeah. lot of anger out there. Yeah, there's a lot. And this is something your book deals with, is sort yeah. of calming it down, reason. I've got a thought. book out, by the way. For <laughs> and it is, it's brilliant. It Thank really you. is. And I'm, I'm not just saying that um, as a condition you. of you doing the gig. It, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> no, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's a contractual yeah, it's, you, yeah. it, oh, Absolutely, yeah. But it's, um, it's, it's a really good read, for I think, for anyone interested in politics, which is hopefully most people in the room. <laughs> Should um, be. But it's just a really good, thoughtful book, because... It, it, all political books have their own structures and things, and the standard autobiography is sort of childhood, adolescence, and all the right. rest of it. This is just a, a book of recollections of government, but of there's a lot of analysis in there, which I really enjoy. Mm. That's digestible; it's not it's not impervious. But it's really um, it, what, what I find so inspiring about it is this idea that actually simple answers are never the best in effect. If that's if that's yeah. an effective way to paraphrase. Yeah, you know, no, we, we we live in a you know because you're quite right. A lot of people are angry, and by the way, they're angry with reason, with yeah. good reason. You know, there are millions and millions of people in across the developed world. So a lot of people seem to be angry at reason. Well, no, yeah, no. <laughs> well, but, but the thing is, I, if you if you're someone who you know hasn't had a pay rise or much of a pay rise since 2008, when the sort of banks went bust, you've had a pay cut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know you you, 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 and you your kid can't get on the first you know the feet on the first rung of the property ladder, and you feel that your job is more insecure over time, and you feel the politicians, the bankers, have never paid mm. the price for what happened. You're really really pissed off, and and then all these politicians come along and they promise the earth and they never deliver and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's just been brewing and brewing and brewing for eight years now. That's a long time to feel that level of insecurity, you know, stagnant uh, income and so on. And then, of course, I to- you know, someone comes along and says, all these complex things, it's not that complex. All you need to do is build a wall and keep the Mexicans out. Or it's all, or it's all Brussels' fault. Or it's all Islam's fault. Or if you're a Scottish nationalist, it's all, you know, it's all London's fault. It, I mean, it, it's, it's as old as the hills, populist politics. It takes, it takes fear and anger, and, it, and then it points a finger. And it points a finger at something or somebody, yeah. or a religion, or a group, or a community. That's what populists have always done. And that's what's happening now on a massive scale. 
And, and I think we're in a, of a generation that didn't think that was possible. We sort of thought we'd got... We kind of graduate, our democracies had become so mature and sophisticated that that wouldn't happen again. But it, it is happening again. And yeah, so I, mean, I don't think I've come up with a, a comprehensive answer. But one of the reasons I wrote the book was, you know, so on earth do the, does the politics of reason and evidence and compromise, which is much more pastel coloured. Yeah. You know, it's much less vivid than the, the build the wall politics. How do you make a comeback? And one of, one of the ways is, is, is kind of what you're touching on is that, and I'm sure I'm, in fact, I know I'm guilty of this, is that the poli- moderate politics became bloodless and technocratic and yeah. lost emotion and lost feeling. And people actually vote with, you know, the vote because of feeling rather than thought. I mean, the, the heart is much, it's a much more powerful kind of muscle, it's not a muscle, is it? Anyway, it's a much more powerful <laughs> organ in terms of why people vote than, than the brain. And, uh, and I think liberals, small L liberals, forgot that. And, and I include myself in that. So in terms of, uh, because this is a huge, particularly the fallout from the referendum, a huge opportunity for the Lib Dems, and Tim Farron has tried to yeah. make the Lib Dems the party of the 48%, sort of in a slight way the SNP did with the 45 in Scotland, and obviously the context is very different with that. Um, do you think with, with Corbyn, the fallout from the referendum, that the Lib Dems can rapidly increase their share of seats at the next election if they position themselves in yeah. this way? Yeah, no, definitely. I've no doubt at all. And... I, and um, I think, poll, it's, I think the, it's... The polls doesn't seem to be there yet. No, as... but... I mean... Ugh. The change polls... What? <laughs> you look like you changed your mind no, to no, me. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. What I was going to say was... Um, I actually think most people at the moment... I mean, and of course, most normal people don't, are not like us. They're not interested in politics. They don't, they don't follow all the ins and outs of politics. Most people are really fed up with politics now. Yeah. They've been asked to vote again and again and again. All this dramatic stuff has happened on, on Europe. They're, kind of, they're just getting on with their... And I, it doesn't surprise me that if you ask them how they're going to vote in a general election, when they know there isn't a general election soon, you probably get quite a sort of static response. So I don't think the polls will okay. budge necessarily overnight. But, but something's budging. Uh, I'll rephrase that again. But, um, uh, so, something, it's warm in it. Something is, uh, it's, it's very cold out there. Um, some, something, something is changing. If you, if, you look at, if you look at local by-elections, which, you know, which, is, which, which happen every week, and they, they happen under the radar screen, they're not reported about, but they happen around the country. The Lib Dems are doing and well. And incredibly well. I mean, we've won more local by-elections in the last several months then I think all, you know, all the other parties are going to put together. We've put on more seats in the local elections in May. So that means where we are out, you know, knocking on people's doors in, in Sheffield. I was yeah. out canvassing a few weeks ago. We won a you know, by-election, went from fourth place to first place. These are all straws in the wind, but they suggest to me that things can change more quickly than, than, might, you know, than might appear to be the case. And there's certainly a big gap there right in the, in the centre, centre ground. Certainly. What do you make of Corbyn? Well, he, he, I don't know him very well. I mean, I think, I have to say to you, I, I do think his demeanour, just the way he appears, I can see why that's incredibly appealing. Because he's everything that kind of slick, you know, perfectly polished politicians are not. You know, he, he looks like a sort of slightly shambolic, quite sort of sweet uncle who's just come off his allotment and is showing you his sort of, his beautiful new courgette or something, you know. <laughs> Rephrase that. Uh, rephrase that, yeah. <laughs> Something's budging. <laughs> um, this is so smutty. I don't know. Uh, no, so I think, I think I can see why his demeanour is really appealing for people who want something to be different and new and authentic and he doesn't sort of... He doesn't talk like other... I can see that. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't... I mean, I, and I don't mean this... I mean, it sounds sort of... Uh, it's, it sounds a bit sort of facetious, but I just don't know... 
I just don't understand the point because I. No, no, I don't. Well, no, no, I, no let, me, let me try and be. And I, and I, and I don't mean this as sort of. Uh, see, politics for me, by definition, is, a, is, is the sort of marriage of high ideals and great values and dreams with, yes, something which is pretty rough and ready and it's mm. pretty tough and it's very imperfect and it never goes exactly as you want. And that's the marriage, that's what politics is about. But it seems to me what he's about, and a lot of his supporters at least, isn't actually politics at all. It's what you do in academia or in a think tank or in a single-issue campaign group or a sect or a religion. It's dreaming of, of, of a utopia and actually not being particularly interested about doing it. Yeah. And, and, and in the same way that I very much agree with you, I'm, I'm, I've become a sort of, in my latter days, I've become a sort of one-man sort of trade union standing up for politicians. Because I actually yeah. think politicians aren't all evil, venal amoral beings. I also think pol- you know, people just... Politics, yes, it is a rough old business. It's not... If you, you, it does mean getting your hands dirty. And it seems to me that I don't think the sort of Corbyn ethos wants to get its hands dirty. It doesn't actually want to do... Apart from the and that's the bit, And that's the bit which I just think is just wrong, because I can yeah. get that in a... I could get that if Jeremy Corbyn was an incredibly popular... I don't know, if he was running Liberty or Greenpeace, or I could get that. You're a great standard bearer for a, a purer, better world that we all dream of. But to be the leader of the principal party of opposition, whose job it is to keep, you know, keep the powerful to account, and he's just not doing that. I think that's just... I think that's wrong. I think it's really wrong. That's, you know, I want, this government is getting away with blue murder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people agree with that, and I think even a lot of people that initially supported Corbyn are, are starting to um, become dissatisfied with the sort of lack of progress and, and, and the frustration of week in, week out, seeing the Tories being failed to be held to account. Yeah, and, and particularly on the Brexit stuff. I mean, it, 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 it just beggars... I mean, today, did you see this? You see this Boris Johnson was in Turkey? I mean, I just, I, I just, it's unbelievable. This guy, the, the gall of it. There's a chutzpah of it. He told us all, do you remember, before the 23rd of June, that one of the big reasons you, well, you'll do the impersonation. I, I can't, I, yeah. I, <laughs> these, these Turkish, yes. yeah, they're coming, I, I'm part Turkish myself. I, I, but a lot of them want to come. 80 million, I, 40 million, yeah, yeah 40, 400 million Turkish. <laughs> you know, a billion of them all yeah. scuttling over here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Back of a transit van or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, exactly. Explain. So he said that. And now do what he did today. Uh, we you know, well, I won't try and do it, but he, 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 he went to Erdogan and said, and we'll do everything to get Turkey to the European Union. I mean, just... It, I just I find it amazing, and no-one's challenging these people. And, you know, Fox, Liam Fox. I mean, what a... He's become a... <laughs> No, I, I do think Liam Fox is, is a particularly sort of becoming a particularly sort of ludicrous <laughs> figure in government. No, because he's he's going around. I mean, he hasn't realised yet. He hasn't got a job. <laughs> he doesn't have a job. I mean, I'm serious. It's not even. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's true. He doesn't have a job because if if they choose not to leave the customs union as part of Brexit, then he can't negotiate new agreements. But even if they do, they can't do that for several years. He literally has nothing to do. <laughs> And then he goes around giving these incredibly inane speeches. <laughs> sort of saying it's all going to be fine, it's going to be brilliant, and we're a great trading nation, and da 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 And it's just based <laughs> on no evidence. And no one is holding these people to account. And that's what the Labour Party should be doing. Of course, the Lib Dems should be, should be doing it. We are. Tim Farrell is doing a brilliant job. 
But, you know, we are only eight MPs now, and, and <laughs> unless anyone had not noticed that. Um, and that's why I just think it's, you know, that's why I just think it, I mean, it's bad enough, of course, I would say this, I think it's bad enough that we're, we're leaving the European Union on what I consider to be false pretenses, but, but now we're doing so with a bunch of people in government who don't know, you know, don't know where they're coming or going on it, and, and, and Corbyn's not addressing that. I mean, I think in his speech today, he barely talked about it. It's the, it's the biggest thing to hit our country and future generations. And he won't even talk about it. I just... Anyway, I've stuck, I'll stop ranting. No, 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 because it's... What, what's, what, what I think is obvious is that the fire still burns. You know, a lot of people who've been in government and then find themselves out of it are sort of relieved that it's over. People like Jack Straw and Alistair Darling, you can sort of feel that the weight's been lifted. With you, however, there's still, there's still energy in the tank. I mean, you look younger than me, and you look younger than... <laughs> You look younger than you did in government. I mean, is there a part of I had that... a lot of acne when I was young. Did you see the report today? Seriously, no, the report? I didn't, know. Yeah. For all of those of you who had, like I did, acne when you were young, it, it, it pays off. There was, a, there was a scientific study saying people who had lots of spots when they were young look, look younger when they're older. So there you go. Finally, yeah. after years of Googling, you found yes. the... <laughs> so now you know what I do all day. <laughs> but Useless facts. <laughs> do you... Um... Do you still think part of you you could go back and lead the Lib Dems at some point? No, 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 no. You, 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 don't, you don't sort of you don't reheat. Sort of but old Salmon coffee. did, Farage did. No, no, no. I, I, and I, I know I would say this anyway. Of yeah. course, I would, even if I didn't think it. But I do think it. I really do think Tim Farron is doing a, a really he's an incredibly difficult job to you know to pick a party up after the hammering we got last year. Yeah. And I think he's doing it incredibly well. And I know I wouldn't. Uh, and he's asked you know, he's, he's asked me to to, to you know, play a role. Um, Asking government questions about the Brexit stuff, which I'm, you know, which I'm doing with with, with pleasure. So maybe not now, but if Tatum was to go after the next election, I just I, this what if stuff. I just really no, I I can't envisage it at all. I really can't. But I think there'd be an appetite for it. I think people think, well, out of the eight Lib Dem MPs, a lot of people would say, well, you're you know, that wasn't meant to be like that. But a lot of people would say, well, you're the vast best. electorate. But a lot a lot of people would look at those and say, well, you're clearly one of the best. <laughs> It's not going to happen. Okay. Because what? It's not going to happen. I know what I mean. Okay. Maybe. I mean, I tell you what was interesting. I thought about your period in government was that um, the the intense psychodramas that you get in the Tory party and the Labour party. You'd always had a light shone on them for so long, and in the Lib Dems, actually, you'd you'd sort of got away with all the sort of tensions below the water. Government brought that out a bit, and. um, One of my favourite bits of TV, political TV, was when you and Chris Hoon were standing against each other. And I think it's on... Is it oh, the Andrew God, Marble? yes. Oh, the Daily Politics. The no, Sunday it was Politics. Andrew Neil, yeah. It's Andrew Neil, and he says, um, oh, yeah. but you've been, you've been briefing against him. And you go, what? <laughs> and Chris Hoon's going, I know nothing about this. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's when he called... Calamity Clay. Right. <laughs> because we've got a briefing note here called Calamity Clay. That's right. Well, your office have been putting it out. And he's going, I don't know why it's Irish. But it, it, and then he's sort of... You, what's brilliant is, if you didn't know that that egg briefing exists, and yes. I kind of hope you did, you act as if though you no, hadn't. No, I, and it's such a great bit of method acting, you go, <laughs> what? what's this? So, but just enough, just enough, just enough. No, no, I, I, I genuinely didn't know there was a file called... Cal- <laughs> Why do you think I should know there's a file called Calamity Clay? <laughs> Because whispers get out, don't they? You know? But it, I mean, also, but Chris was also Chris was also magnificent. I mean, he's such he's a very thick-skinned sort of carnivorous politician. He, he, he just sort of blustered his way through it perfectly. Didn't seem in the slightest bit embarrassed by it at all. And, and did that did that affect your personal relationship? 
A bit, a bit, <laughs> a bit, a bit. You know, I mean, he did. I mean, Chris and I uh, actually go back a, a long way because we were MEPs together. And in fact, yeah. in fact, I think he was about the only Lib Dem that came to... Um, Prison. To <laughs> 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 You go to prison. You don't come to prison. I know, but it's, it, it was, was a quick enough. It was a very good yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say to our wedding, not not Chris and my wedding, the the, the Miriam and my wedding. Yes. So he was. So he was actually, as far as politician friends go, probably yeah, yeah. one of the closest. Yeah, yeah. No, he were, and of course, of course, it has an effect. And uh, but you know, I still see him from time to time. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> did Did you visit him in prison? No. Um, did you want to? Uh, I uh, actually, I think if I had not been deputy prime minister, yeah. and I felt I could have done without a whole bank of cameras, you know, I, yes, I probably would have done. And did you? I mean, it was so sh- shocking when anyone goes to prison. Yes. Um, but did you think, oh my god, I hope it's going to be? A-. Did you sort of have these sort of Shawshank nightmares about it? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, though. Now, the Shawshank lived them. One of the most <laughs> surreal moments. Uh, that I had ever in politics actually relates directly to the day when the uh, uh, Director of Public Prosecutions announced, so Keir... Starmer. Yes, now a Labour MP. I'm sure I had nothing to do with his <laughs> willingness to prosecute a Lib Dem cabinet minister. I'm sure it genuinely didn't, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, we were all... The whole the then much larger Lib Dem parliamentary party, we were at a slightly sort of faded... Uh, seaside hotel in Eastbourne and I remember it was very cold outside and I was just that uh, uh, <laughs> um, as a theme developing <laughs> and there was an absolute bank of journalists outside because they knew that, that, that Chris Hewn's fate was going to be mm. sort of sealed that day what was Keir Starmer going to announce that he was going to be prosecuted or not and, at ten, and, and, the, and everyone was down in a sort of conference room in this, in this uh, uh, hotel in Eastbourne <laughs> Uh, all the MPs, and I was upstairs with Danny and, and a few other people, and then the news came through that Keir Starmer said he was going to be prosecuted. I spoke to Chris Hume. He obviously had to resign. I then needed to decide who was going to replace him, Ed Davey. I spoke to Ed Davey, and I went down in a very sombre mood, of course, and conscious of the fact that all you know, the nation's media was outside and great furore about you know, what was happened to Chris Hume and all the rest of it. Came down to the conference centre to announce to the uh, Lib Dem MPs there... And I found the Lib Dem MPs being addressed by a man in a bee suit <laughs> who was called Barnaby the Eastbourne Buzz, <laughs> who was being introduced by a wildly overenthusiastic Lib Dem MP for Eastbourne. <laughs> and this was, and they were all engrossed in what this bee was saying. <laughs> well, I was trying to it was just a mixture of the office and the thick of it, as I was trying to explain to them just what happened to one of their colleagues. Oh, that's fine, just turn back to the bee, you know. <laughs> So he goes to prison and, and all that, and it was, it was a spectacular fall from grace. Wasn't oh yeah, it? yeah. Um, did, did, did the party sort of look after him? Uh, I think so. I think so. I mean, um, I mean, Chris is one of the most resilient people I've ever met in uh, in uh, in you know political life, and. Um, I mean, the last time I saw him a few months ago, we had, we had lunch together. I mean, it, he's, he, I mean, he really is extraordinary. I mean, he's sort of yeah. picked himself up. He's, he's, he's got all sorts of entrepreneurial initiatives. He's learned a lot of woodworking. He's done <laughs> 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 some great knitting. <laughs> um, no, no, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's not... But what, what's very admirable about Chris, actually, he, he never expects anyone to feel sorry for him. You know, he yeah. sort of 
boy, did he take <laughs> it on the chin. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so other Lib Dem colleagues then, so um, particularly ex-leaders, it's always interesting seeing leaders' relationship with ex-leaders. We've mm. been very kind about Tim Farron. Um, Paddy Ashdown, uh, <laughs> it's, sort of, it's more outspoken, isn't yeah. it? You're more outspoken about Tim, more outspoken yeah. about politics. Uh, did you find him a, a sort of help or a hindrance when you were leading the party? A massive help. I mean, I mean pa- Paddy is the, the closest I have. He's not only a very close friend, he's the closest I have to a sort of, uh, you know, a mentor, really, I think. Um, he's always been... Uh, he's always been incredibly supportive, he's sort of just ferociously loyal. I mean, doesn't pull his punches when he thinks... I mean, I remember he once walked into my... Marched in... He doesn't walk, he marches. <laughs> marched into my office and sat down and said, You're fat! <laughs> sort of sat up and... No, no, he said, Can't go to the election campaign, you're fat! And I, he sort of instructed me to sort of lose weight. But you did... You so did... I started doing Gordon Brown in... <laughs> <laughs> you, did, uh, you did put on weight in government. Yes. Uh, and quite quickly. Yes, very quickly. Why was that? Well, because, I mean, it, it is impossible to describe... I mean, it was perhaps doubly or triply, quintuply the case for me just because Whitehall wasn't prepared, well, didn't really have the arrangements in place to support a deputy prime minister properly in a, yeah. in a coalition. But it is, I mean, it is a massive, massive shock to the system. You, you, you know, you fought a campaign... You know, most normal people just want to go to sleep and hibernate after a campaign, and you get immediately thrown into those coalition negotiations, mm. then immediately thrown into government, immediately thrown into Whitehall system, which is not used to coalition, and you just get this tsunami. I mean, these piles and piles of, of paperwork. Ev- what? <laughs> of cakes. Of cakes. <laughs> of donuts. <laughs> of, of paperwork, which you have to sort of churn through every night before giving it back, all annotated and commented on the, the following morning. And, um, uh, and ridiculous. I mean, pages on stuff on local government financing formulas and energy subsidy, you know, calculations and all sorts of stuff. You've got the faintest idea about. And they give you all this stuff. And it, particularly at the beginning, when the kind of the, the whole machine is trying to kind of work out, you know, what this, what the coalition government wants to do. They were, they were, you know, the, the civil servants were just churning out stuff for Cameron and me to kind of then try and work out amongst ourselves what we wanted to to do. And it, I mean, it, 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 it you know, I'd, I'd go home and I would then, after the kids went to bed, I'd just sort of sit there with this sort of paper all around me. I'd often sort of go to sleep, sort of dribbling over some <laughs> submission from the Treasury, wake up at two o'clock in the morning and carry on trying to do that. And so you just, you know, I think that, I think if you, if you work through the middle of the night like that, week after week after week, you tend to get very tired. And then I certainly find when I get tired, I eat too much. So maybe that's the reason why I put on too much weight. And was there a staple of the Clegg diet at that point? Just everything, really. Just <laughs> large bowls of cereal on my own at night. What sort of cereal? Um, it's like mum's net, isn't it? Yeah. I'm quite a Cheerios fan, I have to say. Oh, che- oh. Yeah. really? We've for Cheerios? Um, they're sort of in the this right... This relevant, actually. I think. Yeah, I know, but it, the thing is with Cheerios, what, what's great about the Cheerios is... <laughs> uh, uh, and I think a lot about this stuff is... Yeah. They're not sugary enough that no. you feel like an infant exactly. for eating. Exactly. They sort so if you, of still... Exactly. If you eat Frosties or Sugar Puffs, and I tried Sugar Puffs the other day, again, <laughs> for that very reason, it's just... After a while, it's just too sugary. It was Cheerios. It's a middle-aged cereal, I think. Yeah, and it, they look... <laughs> they look quite healthy as well. There's yeah. not a cartoon yeah. wolf on the yeah. box. And it's not shiny. I mean? They're not shiny. No, you don't get free shit in no, there. No, no, no. So you, kind of, you can sort of say, well, it's... But it has something which looks very similar, unnervingly similar, actually, to Barnaby, the Eastbourne bus <laughs> on the front. Oh, it does, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh so you go, for the, you go for the honey Cheerios? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. No, I go for the honey Cheerios. Not the, not the full, no, no, full the grain multigrain. No, the honey Cheerios. <laughs> 
just a nice detail to that. <laughs> but I don't eat it anymore, that's the point. Okay, so what yeah. do you have for breakfast? For breakfast? Yeah. Banana, okay. uh, toast, and a boiled egg. Oh, yeah. That's like a boxer's yeah. diet. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's oh, good, yeah. yeah. And then do you sort of treat yourself at night? Or? Uh, night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, a bit of Rivita, I find, with. Oh, my God. Rivita with a bit of. Full health. Philadelphia on yeah. top. A bit of Philadelphia, and then maybe a bit something on top of that, yeah. Philadelphia with jam's good. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> A few people experimenting. Yeah. Um, if we keep this up, you won't ask me any more questions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what are your vices then? Because you smoked for a bit. Do you still smoke? No, I stopped. When did you stop? I properly stopped a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, was that your main vice? It probably. It's boring, isn't it? Yeah, probably. And I didn't even smoke oh, that much. But, um, but I, 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 I have to... Get, no, I've genuinely stopped. But I mean, this is it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, I did... I have to confess, I found at the end of the day... Because that's the other thing I, I, I found in the sort of half a decade or whatever that I was in government and the rest of it, is you're constantly, you're constantly with people the whole time, right? Mm. And stuff is being thrown at you the whole, whole time, right? So just noise, 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 noise. And so I think it wasn't even so much the cigarettes, it was just the excuse to go out to the sort of backyard yeah. and not have any noise and just smoke. It was like a sort of time out, I think. That's what I, that's, I think that's what I associated smoking with by the end. Was not, I didn't smoke that much, but you know, at night, just on my own, no noise, <laughs> no phone. Sounds a bit sad, but it was very, very nice. No, I understand. I, I... Before retiring for a bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, let's open it up to the audience. So if you, if you put your hand in the air, uh, Tim will come around with a roving mic. Let us know what your name is. And if you can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, we'll try and get around as many people as possible. The, the chap just in the middle row there was the first one with his hand up. So we can get the... Uh, we can just pass the microphone along. Uh, let us know your name and let us know your question. Hi, it's uh, Graham here. As a fan of cereals... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you pick the, the current... Top three leaders, uh, you know, in charge of our government, and had to pitch them celebrity deathmatch style against serial mascots. <laughs> who would you pitch against who? <laughs> Fuck and why? Can I get back to you afterwards? <laughs> no. What? What's so, the question? I'm not what? even sure I understand it. Match three. Do you remember a celebrity deathmatch? That old animated. Yeah, show? MTV. It was like plasticine fingers yes. fighting each no, other. I don't. So, um, uh, <laughs> so what, you, you want Nick to... I, I, I want Nick to pick um, uh, serial characters versus our current government. OK, so, for instance, Tony the I Tiger... I Liam Fox against the honey monster. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, so yeah. Took, and the honey monster will win. Against? The honey monster will win. No, exactly, but you've got to pick the top three against... Oh. Uh, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll come back to that. Got fucking group stages <laughs> for serials. Um, the chap in front had a question, but... It was from while it lasted. Hi, Nick, it's Alan. Um, I want to take you back to the alternative vote referendum. Yeah. And uh, pitch a hypothetical, which I suspect you won't want to answer, but I'm going to try and push yeah, you. Yeah, sure. If it passed, yeah. do you think you would still be in government and with Labour or Tories, or do you think it would make no difference? That's a good question. Uh, I think the cephologists say, I'm not actually, I think it would have helped us a bit last year. I, th actually, I think it would have possibly helped the Tories quite a bit, wouldn't it? I, th I, I, I need to, because as you know, AV is not perfectly 
proportional. Um, so I don't know what the outcome would have been. I don't know whether it would have delivered a majority or not. Uh, so I can't, so I, without sort of having run the, having well run the, well, do you know what the answer is? No, does anyone know? No, no, that was a trick question. No, no, but does anyone know what the answer is? I don't know what, I don't know what the election My was. My hunch is that it would help you a little. What? It would have killed you. AD. <laughs> it would have killed you. Would have wiped out the Lib Dems. Mr. Cheerful there. <laughs> okay, uh, let's. Uh, yes, the chap at the back with his hand in the air over there. Hi, Nick. Leo here. Um, with the rise of UKIP and the, the collapse of the Labour Party, are you concerned about the rhetoric that's coming from UKIP and the defection of voters from the Labour Party towards UKIP rather than to any other party? Oh yeah, I think UKIP's going to do exceptionally well in Northern England against Labour. And I think they probably would have done so under any leader. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, as you know, I, I've been for the last 11 years an MP in, in Sheffield, which is there's a, there's a little cake slice of uh, Lib Demery in my constituency in South West. Well, uh, cake again, cake, mate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Really yummy cake. It's like a little bowl of Cheerios. The rest of it is a classic, you know, classic, you know, northern um, uh, metropolitan area. And you, I can see it in place after place after place that uh, UKIP, particularly where they're well organised, can just uh, can just you know can rise very very fast um, because there are lots and lots of traditional Labour voters there who who, who just don't feel connected with the Labour Party anymore. Um, so I would, an, I would anticipate, actually, almost regardless of what happens between now and the next general election, unless something very dramatic changes, that UKIP will do very well against Labour in the, uh, in the North. And look, in, in, a, in a kind of rationally representative parliament, which obviously we don't, we don't have, but if you had a, actually not AV, if you had a properly proportional system, I think you'd have a, you'd have a, you'd have a healthy sort of, chunk of MPs from the, you know, from the far left. You'd have a healthy chunk of MPs from the far right, from UKIP. Uh, then, of course, what would happen in the centre? Would, it be, you know, would the Tories splinter? Would you have a Christian Democratic Party? And then a little, would you have a big Liberal centre-ground party? But, you know what? It is deep, in my view, it is deeply, deeply unhealthy uh, that we have, a, we have a political system at the moment where millions and millions of people are voting for an option, UKIP, which is not being expressed yeah. in Parliament. I, I mean, and I, I mean this in the purest sense, I, I think it is, it'd be so much healthier for us all if those four million votes for UKIP were properly expressed in a sizable yeah. UKIP parliamentary party. Be it's, a good laugh. Well, it, <laughs> it would certainly be that. But, you know, because at, at the moment, you know, as long as, as long as UKIP, on top of all its other grievances about the modern world, can claim that it's been shortchanged by the, mm. the, the, the system. It just, it just perpetuates this kind of sense of uh, an outsider party being short, which it is. It is being shortchanged by... We are as well, but uh, so are the Greens and so on. Um, but, it, you know, at the moment, we've got this really malformed party, you know, ridiculous over-representation of the SNP. You know, they've got roughly 50% of the vote in Scotland, got more or less 100% of the seats. The Tories, obviously, wildly overrepresented. Uh, you know, do you believe it? Lib Dems, we've got a million more votes than the SNP. Yeah, they got what, 56 seats. We've got eight. That it just—I yeah. know it's very Lib Dem to say this, but it's just, it just—it just seems to me that it's just got so out of whack with actually the choices people are making in the ballot box. That's really, really unhealthy. 
Okay. Uh, any questions from this side of the room? And uh, it'd be good to have a few female questions if possible. Um, there's a chap at the bar waving his arm. Let's go there. Um, do apologise if this is a slightly personal question. Oh, crikey. Do you, do you feel um, a need to justify yourself a lot of the time uh, in nights like this, for example? And if so, is that... Well, it's a Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I meant the history of what happened. Uh, is, there, is there a feeling to, to say, you know, this is why, this is what it was all about? Because you feel you've been painted poorly, you know, by the posh of history. Well, if, I think if I don't, no one else will. So, uh, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a bit of that. I hope, I hope it. Um, well, I hope I do it in response to people's interest or questions, rather than sort of plaintively or whingingly. No, I mean, look, I, 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 um, uh, I mean, I remain stubbornly and resolutely proud of what we did over five years. I didn't get everything right, of course not. But the big judgments, forming the government in the first, first place, sustaining it over five years, introducing some big reforms, which I think will stand the test of time. I'm immensely proud of what we did. And so clearly, if I encounter people who don't think that, then I'll, you know, I'll sort of... Beat them up. <laughs> give them okay. a bowl of Cheerios, yeah. Uh, and, and the final question to the lady on the balcony. The microphone's coming now. Um, no, I, well, I, just, just to, sort of be, to sort of be fair to David Cameron, what I meant to say was that I think he was a very typical Conservative, actually, because he represented that quite long and very effective, I mean, you know, one of the most effective parties in the democratic world. Um, he, he represents, and I think almost distilled, actually, that slightly sort of, that sense of, slight sense of entitlement, that slight sense that, you know, chaps like him should always be in charge. And there's absolute no's for power. Much, he was much less interested in political ideas or ideology. And that's quite a conservative... That's why it's such a pragmatic, ruthlessly flexible party. Uh, Theresa May... Theresa May is... It, it, it's a real mystery to me. Um, <laughs> and it's a genuine... And I, you know, she sat next to me, to, to, appropriately to my right-hand side, <laughs> uh, around the cabinet table. I would meet her once or twice a month. Uh, you know, did that for half a decade. I don't... I really don't know... She was always very diligent, quite sort of, quite technocratic. It was, you know, do her homework, was, was thorough, and that was admirable, uh, tough. But I never really felt she was guided by a particular kind of vision, you know, I mean, vision of society or a particular kind of passion for, for, for you know, for this ethos or that value. She, she didn't breathe a word about education, still less about selection of education. In, in five years, and suddenly we're told that's the great, that's the great holy grail. So I, it's a really odd thing. We have a prime minister about ho- whom I think we know less than any other prime minister in in in, in at least a generation. And, and, or two. And that's incredible. I mean, you stood next to the urinal for five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to put you on the spot, Nick. Our next guest next month is Ed Balls. Oh. Uh, and one of the things I used to do, and I, I just stopped doing it, was getting. Uh, each guest to provide the first question for the next one. So what should my first question for Ed Balls next month be? Uh, I should Ed have let you Balls. I should have um, let you know this beforehand. Uh, uh, I can't I'll give him a generic one. Does, uh, would he prefer to would he prefer to 
travel back in time or travel forward to the future and why? Is that right? That's gone down really badly. Um, oh what about a sort of personal question about him or his Cereal career? Serial mascots. The fucking serial mascot. <laughs> I had no idea that Sears was going to be a real Pandora's box. No, but, but I do hope you'll ask him whether he, should, he'll, he, he could come back, because much though I disagree with him, I think he was a... I mean, he was, he was a, you know, he was a serious heavyweight guy, and, yeah. I, and I think... <laughs> in all, that, all the senses of that word. I mean, I think, I, think he should, I think he should... You know, people always lament that David Miliband hasn't come back. Yeah. I, I think I think it'd be good for the Labour Party if he comes back. So, so a question for Ed Balls from Nick Clegg is, will you come back? Yeah. I mean, it makes it sound like he's left you. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Clegg says, will you come back? He really misses <laughs> it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, every night we've had down here has been uh, very special. I, I'm sure you'll agree with me, this has been uh, one of the best evenings we've ever had here and one of the best guests and just a superb evening, Nick. Um, next month, we've got Ed Balls. Uh, in November, it is Paddy Ashdown. Oh. Uh, January is Jess Phillips. Uh, February is Margaret Hodge. March is Nicky Morgan. Uh, so good... Oh, that's, OK. <laughs> Maybe not, by the sounds of things. Uh, but a good political spread. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you for all for downloading the podcast and for making this evening special. But please, a massive thank you to the phenomenal Nick Clegg. <laughs> well, there you go. That was Nick Clegg. Uh, what an incredible uh, man to interview. And it, one of those things where you sit there and think, there's so many other things I wanted to ask him. Um, but that, getting the, the insight into his experiences, and of course the Cheerios chat, which became um, far more detailed than perhaps it should have done, uh, providing uh, not that there wasn't enough levity either. Uh, a really funny and likeable man. And um, I just get that sense uh, that he's still got so much more in the tank. And I know he ruled out needing the Lib Dems one day, but you do get the sense of him that there's still something more political left to achieve. And whether he gets to achieve it or not, whether he wants to go through all that again, uh, remains to be seen. Next month's guest is Ed Balls. In uh, November, it's Paddy Ashdown. In January, it's Jess Phillips. In February, it's Margaret Hodge. And in March, it's Nicky Morgan. Tickets sell out well in advance. Um, so book in advance to avoid disappointment at the website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. Um, it was good to be back, uh, back in the old venue and um, doing a full show again. Uh, so thank you, as always, for downloading this, and I hope you enjoyed it. Cheers. Bye.